0: I bruise you, you bruise me, we both bruise too easily. So go the lyrics composed by Jimmy Webb and sung here by Art Garfunkel. Getting through life without bruising or hurting others is a difficult task. But what then? The traditional answer is revenge, imprisonment, or worse. Our guest today, Keith Hickman, has a different idea. Instead of punishing the offender, what if the offender was required to right the wrong? They have a name for Keith Hickman's idea. They call it restorative justice. The harm we do and the harm we suffer as individuals and as a people generate difficult questions the societies and institutions that are created in response to harm shape our today's and our distant days they become our answers justice seeking as a response to harm has several guises it may be retributive competitive distributive collaborative or restorative the clamor is for justice yet what one gets may not be what is expected or desired So welcome friends, we are Forward Radio WFMP LP 106.5 FM. You are listening to Solutions to Balance, a program sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is a subcommittee of the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Following as part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming, the views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you want to share your views, you may send us an email to solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Keith
1: Hickman. Keith Hickman is the Executive Director of Collective Impact for the International Institute for Restorative Practices. He served as an advisor to the Maryland Commission on the School-to-Prison Pipeline and Restorative Practices. He is a partner scholar on the Cassell Equity Work Group and is a member of the Research, Development, and Design Team for the California Safe, Healthy, Responsive School Network. Keith has worked with several school districts and community-based agencies to develop large-scale programs in major cities all across the country from New York to Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., to the parishes across Louisiana. Mr. Hickman has served in high-level leadership positions for various K-12 educational organizations, including New York City Department of Education and new leaders for new schools. In 2000, he helped found the Youth Justice Project at the Harlem Community Justice Center. This is one of four community justice centers under the Center of Court Innovation Program in New York City. Mr. Hickman holds a Bachelor of Arts in the Sociology of Human Development from Antioch College. Mr. Hickman, welcome to Solutions to Violence, and thank you for Zooming back to us in your hometown of Louisville. Thanks, Jim and
2: Jamie, for having me on the show. It's really a pleasure to be here and to reconnect with you, Jamie, back in my hometown of Louisville.
1: You grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville is your hometown. you graduated from the Jefferson County Public Schools and the J. Graham Brown School, but now you're in New York State. What attracted you to New York?
2: Thanks, Jim and Jamie, for having me on the show. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I actually live in New York City right now, but between Harlem and Washington Heights. My journey to New York started in Louisville, of course, my hometown, and I went to school in Yellow Springs, Ohio, at Antioch College. And from there, I actually spent the 90s in Seattle, Washington, uh, working in mental health services, youth and family services, and doing gang intervention work. I met my wife in college and moved back to New York in 99 and continued my profession in social justice and
1: education from there. Well, many of us know very little about restorative justice. How how long has it been around and, and how did it begin? First, let me start by paying homage
2: to First Nations people around the globe that for centuries have provided us in this work the indigenous ethos that is strongly and relational and is a communitarian approach to justice. So the roots of this work start there and require all of us as practitioners and leaders in restorative justice practices to understand and incorporate this knowledge into our current practices. When we look at the last 50 years, the restorative justice movement originated from mediation and reconciliation between victims and offenders. That work coming out of Canada and eventually made its way to the U.S. and Europe under various names such, but still is based on victim and offender mediation. Eventually what happened was modern restorative justice broadened to include communities of care, real justice conferencing, family group conferencing out of New Zealand in the late 1980s, and community policing, and in the later part of the 90s, what we now call restorative practices. So again, I wanna start by paying homage to the First Nations people around the planet for their wisdom and blueprint for this work and our restorative justice pioneers here in the West, Howard Zaird, Ted and Susan Moctel, Kate Peranis, Anya Davis, Terrell Collin, Mark Yancey, Paul McCall, Cole, March Thornburg, and many, many others that paved the way for folks like me to do this work. in our institution, the IRP Graduate School, do its work. So that said, I highly recommend a few resources that really go into detail about this work, just so you'll get a frame, and we'll be able to cover all that. But I recommend, you know, The Little Book of Race and Restorative Justice by Fania Davis, The Little Book of Restorative Justice by Howard Zare, Dreaming of a New Reality by Ted Wachtel, and, and and The Little Book of Circle Processes by Kate Paranis. Of course, there are many other books and resources out there, but for restorative practice and restorative justice.
1: Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, your position in New York is Executive Director of Collective Impact. What is that position, and how does it uh, impact uh, restorative justice? Well, the the IRP
2: Graduate School is located in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and uh, I have the fortune of working virtually in New York or from New York. My title is relatively new, and really what it means is the ability to work across partnerships in such a way where together we are seeking to have an impact in an area or a need of concern. So when you're talking about school districts, a collective impact would be how at a national level am I doing work with partners like Castle for Academic Social emotional Learning, PBIS, and, and other thought leaders in the k 12 field, how are we leveraging those resources collectively in partnership with a shared agenda with a particular outcome in mind to best support and work with school districts on addressing some of the needs and concerns around bringing equity and justice in, in, you know, across the district and across schools. So collective impact really is about a process and a mindset and a way by which we lever resources based off a shared common mission or purpose.
1: Yeah, we mentioned you were in the groundwork of founding the Youth Justice Project at the Harlem Community Justice Center. Would you tell us about that project and how it came about? Sure. So
2: back in early 2000, shortly after moving to Seattle and New York City, to join my wife Uh, my first job was with the center for court innovation called cci and they were founded as a public private partnership between the new york state unified court system and the fund for the city of new york for the purpose of creating uh, and operating programs to test new ideas and solve problems and then perform original research to determine what works and what doesn't and provided expert assistance to justice reformers uh, around the world so some of the original projects included the midtown community court its first original experiment back in 1993. This resulted in other community court models in justice-related programs, such as the Redwood Community Justice Center and the Harlem Community Justice Center, where I had the opportunity to co-design the Youth Justice Project. And that was built on a couple of things. One was a team court model that's used around the country, as well as a service learning model, which incorporated components of what we would call restorative justice. And keep in mind, this is prior to me joining the International Institute for Restorative Practices. So, yeah, so that is a pretty important body across the state of New York. But also, the CCI has had tremendous impact around the world on how community and courts can actually work in a relational way.
0: So, Keith Hickman, there's an interest in the program with storytelling to reconnect. What does storytelling have to do with justice? Who is supposedly being reconnected here? Through storytelling.
2: The structure of restorative uh, circle or conference allows the voice through storytelling to build empathy and repair harm for those that caused harm and were harmed. I'll start with that. It is the storytelling through a set of structured questions that allow scripts to unfold about the past incident, present feeling and thoughts, and the future actions that need to be taken. And simply, it is a way for victims to voice what they need in order to safely move on with their lives when an incident occurs. It's a way for offenders, you know, using criminal justice language, to hold themselves accountable to their behaviors and actions in conversation with the folks they've harmed. So the storytelling is about letting the truth unfold and in repairing a relational harm caused and an opportunity to be right you know, back in community. Proactively, when we use that language in terms of preventative and, and taking action. Proactively is about storytelling as an important way to strengthen relationships between individuals as well as the social connections within communities, so traditional justice systems are not designed to give voice to those that have been impacted by crime or wrongdoing. In fact, it is more procedural justice than restoring what is needed for victims.
0: Oh, okay, I see. So another focus of the program is called unwinding the conflict. What does unwinding the conflict mean? Why is it important?
2: Whenever I hear the word conflict, you know, I can't, I can't help to pause and think about the work of Niels Christie, who's a great Norwegian sociologist and criminologist that passed, uh, passed away in 2015. Uh, but Christie wrote extensively about conflict as property. And in the British Journal of Criminology back in 1977, he shared the, the victims of crime have in particular lost their rights to participate in a court procedure that restores the participants' rights to their own conflicts, thus making them invisible in the process, uh, an act participant in voicing what they need, especially from the offenders. So that said unwinding conflict means to me to use place conflict to really place conflict back in the hands of those who've been harmed by it and those harm causing the harm. Again, using criminal justice language of victims and offenders. So restorative practices Teach us how to unwind conflict by first giving those harmed a clear voice in the process, a way to be listened to, and an opportunity to witness the person causing harm, accountable for their actions, holding them accountable for their actions as a way to be safe again and to move on with their lives. Therefore, the process, uh, this process of relational uh, is relational supportive through restorative questions that we use. And those questions focus on the past. The present, and teacher actions through the narrative, which is fair for all parties involved. So, Unwinding
1: confidence about truth-telling and reintegration. There's a program, Keith, called Restorative Justice on the Rise. That term, social healing and intergenerational wounds, has a meaning that we'd like to follow up on that. Uh, in relation to R.J. Restorative Justice, what does social healing and intergenerational wounds, what does that mean, and, and what does on the rise mean? Yeah,
2: so the, the intergenerational wounds speak to the generations of racial injustice and the generational trauma that's been experienced, particularly by BIPOC communities, as black, indigenous, people, of color communities. The aim of social healing through restorative justice and practices is to elevate the voices of BIPOC communities and other marginalized communities, especially among young leaders, and our effort for transforming self while transforming the world. It is about restoring dignity and humanity through expression of identity as a way of socially healing. So, how we show up as a community for each other is critical to our efforts to change injustice. And you see this, this, uh, you know, this intergenerational, you know, really approaching intergenerational inter- inter- wounds. The social healing as the voice or the calling in movements like the Black Lives Matter, for example.
1: So that intergenerational interaction, is is that something that usually is the case? Is it two generations that are in conflict with each other?
2: Yeah, no, it's, I don't see it as in conflict. I see it as recognizing the injustices and the wounds caused by those injustices that is passed on to future generations. And how future generations, you know, across generations are really going to address that concern and heal from that. It's really about internal healing and community healing and a community Platform or space by which we combat injustices or what's causing those intergenerational wounds. It's trauma that has been experienced because of the institutionalized racism or the conditions that have created that, and then really making sure that as a community that uh, young people in particular, you know, with their elders, are, are trying to heal from the trauma of that and in using healing as a way to actually combat injustices.
1: So it's the dynamic between those two. There's a, there's a reference to the wisdom of teens, teachers, families, law enforcement, and even the incarcerated. In the context of restorative uh, justice, how does wisdom apply to teens? You know, the way it applies to teens is that, you know,
2: we are all somewhat experts in our own lives. So when we're talking about relationships between particularly teachers and teens or teachers and students, and administrators and students, law enforcement and students, Wisdom is about making sure that we are listening to teens, making sure we're listening to their narratives, their stories, the way they perceive themselves, the wisdom about the way they identify culturally, racially, in other forms, and making sure that in order to build relationship, in order to be a, a member of community or a community, we have to make sure that we're really hearing the wisdom that teens bring to the table, we're hearing their voices, and making sure that we're creating a space where they belong and making sure that they have agency to be accountable for their actions and behaviors and be active participants in leading and being a part of a climate and culture such as a school environment. So that's really what wisdom is speaking to. It's speaking to to the ability to actually give voice to your story, to your life, and your ability to actually be transformed by
1: the dynamic of relationship. When people in authority are doing things with people and not to them, that's important. Yeah, that's important. We don't normally think of teens, I think, as having wisdom. That, that's cool. That's, that's great.
0: So Keith Hickman, let's bring this restorative justice theory down to a practical level here. Everyone on the planet by now knows of the killing of brianna taylor that occurred in louisville kentucky march 13th when three metro police officers broke into her apartment 12:40 a.m returning fire ended up killing brianna taylor an ems worker unarmed innocent victim a grand jury did not hold those three police officers accountable for that killing but let's say they had let's say that the grand jury found was something the kentucky alliance against racism and black lives matter certainly support here in louisville how would restorative justice practices address this issue if these three officers had been found guilty of murder
2: well i mean the way I'll, I'll answer to this without getting into the, the politics of, of what's going on i mean that's my personal opinion and i'll reserve that but speaking from from the lens of repairing harm restoring justice I I think that's I know that's what you're hearing in the collective voices of the protesters that's what they're calling for they want justice and they want to be heard and they will be heard and there needs to be some healing now in terms of justice being applied and justice being served and so the restorative restorative justice can, can be extremely important is both in the the dynamic for change the cry for change shift in changes through protest and leadership uh, by the collective and diverse voices around Louisville as a way to actually reshape policy, hold people accountable in terms of what wasn't done, the mistakes that were made, coming up with uh, having community members uh, be a part of Agency for Change and having their voices I mean, the justice piece really allows us to actually serve, do justice in a way that changes and transforms and gets at racial injustices that we see perhaps, you know, that's being voiced in this particular case. And so, so restorative justice really does give us an opportunity to do racial justice, and restorative justice gives us an opportunity and should be a place where we can start to do the healing piece, the repairing of the harm. It's not to necessarily uh, replace the consequences that need to happen it's to speak to that and it's the it's the people work that needs to be done at the community level and the cries for help, the cries for injustice is about restoring and repairing and transforming and all the things we talked about earlier so so that's what you're hearing. And, and the, the next question for around the country and in particular Louisville is, you know, how do we actually come together to actually shift the policy, the practices, the resources, uh, the injustices that are going on, going on throughout the city and put a big spotlight on that? And then what are going to be the new dynamic and the new ways by which we change and transform and reshape policies that are more equitable and fair, particularly to BIPOC communities?
0: Particularly to to what?
2: Black, Indigenous, people of color communities.
0: let change directions here a little bit. There is a federally funded randomized controlled trial implementing and measuring the impact of restorative practices in five high schools in Brooklyn, New York. The study to be completed in 2020 will examine how to shift school culture and reduce the use of suspensions and expulsions with a focus on key disparities related to race and disability. Can you give us a sense of what this program has accomplished?
2: I'd love to. First of all, I just want to say that uh, that, the, that I know Dr. Gregory personally. She's done a lot of work with the IRP Graduate School, and someone I respect, highly respect her body of research in restorative practices, and know that she's a you know she's one of the key scholars on the subject. And so, her breadth of research on the subject is is very noteworthy. In 2015, the Brooklyn Community Foundation initiated the Brooklyn Restorative Justice Project. Their aim uh, is to create a racially just and sustainable disciplinary model that can be scaled across New York's uh, New York City school system and to ultimately halt the school's prison pipeline by providing disciplinary alternatives. In this way, the project aims to forefront RJ promises for promoting racial and social justice. Early report, which came out in November 2016, identifies relevant lessons learned, described during interviews with seven restorative justice practitioners after their initial six months of implementation in four schools in Brooklyn. And their insight included the following. I mean, this is what they learned early on, which is going to be a component of the actual final report, that schools need a comprehensive vision of restorative justice that is beyond behavioral management. We cannot confuse these two. That creating the building blocks for homeschool change, which includes creating relational ethos across the school, investing in building community at the school, top-down and bottom-up approach is necessary, and making it sustainable through stakeholder engagement and involvement. And the third thing that that they've found in terms of a recommendation promise is that capacity building and long-term sustainability is necessary from the onset of the program.
0: Okay, so here in Kentucky, the Jefferson County Public School System, which now educates close to 100,000 students, 29th largest in the nation, restorative practices has been implemented in 30 of the JCPS 167 schools in the last three years. So between 2009 and 2019, the suspension rate of middle schools has increased from 5,000 to 8,023. Elementary schools have experienced a slight decrease From 1,244 to 1,943, high schools have seen an increase in suspensions from 8,007 to 8,847, not a huge increase. In 2018 to 2019 school year, an increase of JCPS suspended about 19,000 students. That's about 19% of the population. A disproportionate number of JCPS suspensions are leveled against African-American and poor white students. So far, restorative practice has not had a significant impact on JCPS schools if we use a suspension rate measure as a criteria for determining the success or failure of restorative justice. Considering the fact that that data has not come in yet, is the Jefferson County JCPS situation typically what happens when restorative practices are implemented in a large schools this district? So talk about how long it will take before the five Brooklyn high schools began to see a difference in their suspension rate.
2: Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. So I've had the opportunity to work very closely, IRP graduates right? was had kind of an opportunity to work very closely with JCPS component of one of the districts. So first, in response to that question, I mean, it, 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 when large school districts like Jefferson County, Pittsburgh Public Schools, Miami-Dade, you know, ne- you know pick a large urban school district, I mean, you're talking about uh, an enormous issue. Uh, you're talking about undoing and addressing policies and practices that for years have relied on expulsion, suspension, punitive practices as a way of addressing uh, behavior or, or discipline. So the fact that, uh, you know, and I want to speak to you first give Jefferson County Public Schools' acknowledgement and praise for having the courage to actually look at a very different approach to how they want to deal with suspensions and the marginalization of black and brown students in particular in terms of making sure that you know they are actually remaining in school and staying in seats. That's not an easy task to do. But first, we have to look closely at the 30 schools that participated in restorative practices training, as opposed to the entire district and the coaching and other supports in alignment that they did with PBIS. So what what happened in Jefferson County Public Schools is these 30 schools over a number of years were being trained and supported both in PBIS, Positive behavioral intervention uh, supports, and restorative practices. So when you look at the program evaluation report, particularly on restorative practices in 2017 2018, which is on the restorative JCPS, restorative justice website, we find when compared to the district as a whole, some pretty major findings. And so they took a formative evaluation data, included measures of fidelity gathering, using observational survey data to collect and data collection tools to, to get to these findings. And what we see is that the level of implementing school-wide restorative practices remained the same over the year and showed some level of improvement in either the climate the engagement or relationships with the greatest effect in elementary schools and that's important because the fact that you could consistently implement at a at a rate that over the duration implementation was pretty consistent is pretty remarkable because what we find in program implementation tends to be that there's a, a down curve, that people burn out, they stop buying in. And we didn't see that, especially in these 30 schools at the, at the elementary school. The second piece is that restorative practices had a positive effect on adult-led interactions with students, which is a key component of the relational ethos that's, that's valuable to repairing harm and building social capital. The number of opportunities for students to respond and teacher engagement increased. And we know that's a sure predictor of uh, students' connectedness to their classroom teachers and connectedness to school, the opportunity for students to respond. And then we know that restorative practices schools, those 30 schools, by and large, showed a decrease in behavior events when compared to the district as a whole. And then we see the student attendance rates decline across the district. However, restorative practice schools were were the least affected uh, by that. So showing the smallest decline among all these schools affected. So what we know from research in other large urban school districts like Pittsburgh, which did the largest RCT study by Rand Corporation to date, on restorative practices and the four Brooklyn schools you speak about, uh, a small cohort of schools. And Jefferson County Public Schools is that implementation of fidelity takes several years with a long-term sustainable impact of three to five years and beyond. This is not a quick fix solution. This is trying to transform the culture through the climate work that is sustainable and really is more equitable for all students to have access to the services and the needs, and it really depends on the dose and duration coupled with implementation fidelity and the other recommendations followed by the RAND study and what Dr. Gregory in Brooklyn has pointed out. I would push back a bit and say that if you look at the container of the 30 schools compared to the district at large, that you did see some pretty major findings in a short amount of time.
0: Good answer. So. Keith, because a disproportionate number of black students in the JCPS system are suspended, it begs the question is institutionalized racism also a factor here? There are three neighborhoods in Jefferson County labeled as food deserts by the Food and Drug Administration. There are no grocery stores in either of those neighborhoods that sell fresh produce. All three of these neighborhoods are working class African American neighborhoods. While at WC, La Plaza, Insuna Burrito, Amiga Flores, Novera Diaz, Yurida Casiris, Cervila Otamira, Ivanovich Mariavich. Their book, The Impact of Malnutrition on Brain Development Intelligence and in Schoolwork Performance, confirms a correlation between malnutrition, brain size, low scores on intellectual tests, and poor scholastic performance, lack of access to fresh produce and good nutrition correlates to just about every kind of malady you can think of, from diminished cognitive development to inability to focus to obesity and diabetes. Is it important to also consider the effects of institutionalized racism on African-American communities? Definitely a factor when you consider the fact that these three neighborhoods, all African-American, have no grocery stores that sell fresh produce. So do you believe restorative practices alone is the panacea needed to solve the problems that exist in our urban school districts? Or do we also look at what's occurring in the neighborhoods since institutionalized racism is still a factor? No,
2: not as a panacea in terms of restorative practices alone. However, I think it's important to consider the effects of institutionalized racism across any of our institutions you know, that's impacting the well-being and flourishing of African American, you know, or African American communities and other communities. However, restorative practices has proven to be an effective approach to in, in, when you look at the, the school sector, an effective approach to improving school climate and culture, and it really does point it points and spotlights on, on you know this, the root causes to disproportionality, which has much to do with relationship connect connectedness, power dynamics, and shifting the mental models with all of these influencing structural changes around policy practices, resources, resource flow into schools and even in school districts. So you can look at the disproportionality and disparity among that and ask the question, you know, does institutional racism play a factor in in this? So I just can't say blanketly it, it does, but I would say the data would pretty much bear out that sure. There are indicators that say yes, that disproportionately African-American you know, students tend to be the ones with highest suspension rates you know, in terms of the school-to-prison pipeline, a number of other factors that you, you talk about, which is why it's important to place restorative practices justice within the context of a community health, public health frame. And what do I mean by that is really examining the social determinants and the conditions that create health inequality. And so restorative practices is a way by which we can examine that and do that kind of work. The relational work needed to actually close the disparity gaps in those things. so when it's done in alignment in terms of the school-based sector, when done in alignment with other K-12 programs, like I mentioned, like PBS and social-emotional learning, we see great promise in changing conditions that continue to foster disparity, discrimination and disproportionality for black and brown students. And the Work that must happen in order to actually drive change around policy practices and resources, economics and things of that sort, at the school level requires that those voices in the black and brown community are at that table helping shape those fundamental policies and directions and shifts. And that there has to be a mindset shift that is, that's built on an equity lens that is about anti-racism approaches, that is about the anti-oppression work, and really recognizes the truth about uh, this country's institutionalized racism and its impact on marginalized communities. And so it just, I see this as an opportunity to get this right. I see this as an opportunity to actually put in place, you know, the policies and practices And and address these concerns, as you mentioned in the materials that you cited, that we need to, I personally think we need to look at this from a community health, public health framework and lens about the well-being and
0: flourishing
1: of black and brown people in this country.
0: Again, good answer.
1: Well, going along with that, Keith, there is a peacemaking program in uh, NYSE that builds on a traditional Native American approach to justice. We understand that the center's peacemaking program focuses on healing and community restoration rather than punishment, but, but what is that traditional Native American approach to justice and how does it tie in to restorative justice? Again, I spoke about this in terms of the indigenous ethos, which really is about how
2: do we repair harm and do it in such a way that it's communal, right? How do we insert the voices of those people who have been harmed in such a way where their needs are being met and they're being restored uh, and healed, and that there's accountability to the person causing that harm and making sure that they are held accountable for any harm they've caused on communities. So those roots and those ties go back to indigenous practices in terms of how do we do justice together? How do we do justice communally? And not over-relying on a system to, to do that. A criminal justice system is an institution that is limited in what it can do and has been designed not to do the very things that we want it to do. So the question becomes is how do we actually, communities are powerful, people are powerful. So how do we leverage their power as a way to actually do justice alongside or to uh, transform or change the way justice is done in some of these institutions? And I'll give you an example. For example, in, the, in communities in Detroit and Chicago, you know, there are peacekeeping circles here in New York, there are peacekeeping circles, and those circles by design is saying that uh, we have capital relationship with people in the community. There are things that we can do to actually solve and get at the, and get some, some solutions in terms of solving community-related problems, and that it's not an over-reliance of, a, of an institution or a system that, as you, as you spoke about in your earlier question, that is, you know, uh, operating under uh, a disproportionate indicators that point to some form of institutional racism. So, um, and so, it's a spiritual healing and a procedural process that is about repairing harm done with people, done collaboratively, and done from the voice and done from the perspective of making sure that communities have been harmed and people that have been harmed have a voice in the process, get to tell their story and get to say what is needed. That's really true for our process, for our process being about engagement, you know, explanation, having a voice, and then some expectation, clarity around how we're going to make things right for the community. And about reintegration.
0: Reintegration?
2: Reintegration.
0: Yeah, that that's an issue that's come up recently in Louisville because uh, two middle schools now have gone back to segregated all African-American schools and and those two schools are experiencing some success in terms of uh, reducing the standardized test score gap. So that's an issue here in Louisville that we're we're looking at very closely.
2: If I may, Jim, I mean, you know, again, it's like the, the question at hand is just because we call something integration doesn't mean that we're doing the foundational work that's important to do true integration. What does it mean to intersect cross-culturally in ways we identify and have those very systems support the well-being and mental social health and academic success of students that have been traditionally marginalized. So just because we call something integration doesn't mean that that we've done the work to make it integrated, you know. And this is where we get into when we just operate at a structural level around a policy that we think is right, we don't inv- involve the very people that should have a voice in that process. Or we think that we, you know, those decision makers are allocating resources and practices or setting the expectations around what it means to be integrated. If we do that exclusively... And we don't do that carefully and thoughtfully in terms of reforming some of these institutional practices that have dis, you know displaced and marginalized folks, then the question is is are we actually doing integration? And so, you know, again, I, I challenge and push and encourage all of us to think carefully about those policies, practices, and resources and what we mean when we say integration. Sure, it's aspirational, but in order to meet that aspiration, we have to do the groundwork, we have to do the hard work, we have to do the real meaningful work. That actually makes that policy in practice a truism.
0: So, Keith, you address this somewhat in the question I asked about Brianna Taylor and justice, but demands are increasing for money to be redirected from police budgets and redirected to social programs able to fit more effectively what the police are expected to address but are not necessarily equipped to deal with some of the issues and should be required to do that. Can you identify a number of sustainable community-driven solutions that can limit the role of police while building strong neighborhoods? So I think we can do both and I don't, I
2: personally don't, and I'm speaking for myself, I unpack what it means to redirect resources. And I clearly understand it's not defunding the police completely. So I don't think that's where we start with this premise. I think, I think it's an opportunity, and I see this as an opportunity, to think about resources, practices, policies that are more relational focused. I mean, part of the problem and challenge that we have is that you don't necessarily have law enforcement officers that have relationship with community members, a good relationship, or done the work to be in, you know, be relational. So the way I would answer this is how can we allocate resources? How do we actually first bring people together at the community level and in the institutional law enforcement to actually struggle with that question? We There are some exemplar practices of where community engagement through relational approaches have been very, very effective. And so we don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel here. And I think what we have to do is really talk about sustainable community driven approach that is about, that is geared around relational practices that permeate through the fundamental policies and practices within law enforcement. So let me give you an example of that. You know, you might ask the question, when there are citizens complaints, how can we actually, you know, first of all, is that working in the way it was designed? And how can we actually do that better? How can we do that more as a community, more relational, where there's a power balance between the community voices that need to be surfaced and law enforcement and those in leadership actually using those voices or hearing those voices and listening to those voices as a way to actually shift and change some of the procedures and administrative practices by which they take complaints. It's just transactional, then there's going to be a challenge. I mean, this is the thing that community members are speaking to. If it's just transactional and it's going from a call to like a paper, and it's administrative, are we really doing everything we can to make sure that there is a fair process in place that represents the voices of community? So that's just one example of many review boards, participatory action in terms of when there are injustices or when there are acts of discrimination or misuse or abuse of power, like, you know, that there are places and spaces by which there has to be a balance of power, a balance of voice, a balance between community and law enforcement in order to get to where we need to get to, to address those concerns. So, I mean, I personally think that's what's at the forefront of what we're talking about here. And there's an overreliance of a punitive, you know, a punitive approach to justice. There's an overreliance that fixes. We'll just put more officers, uh, and that will automatically create safety and security. And I think we have to be very careful about how, you know, what evidence points to that, and be very careful about how those conversations are happening, where they're happening, and what are the opportunities to kind of shift some of that, those mental models build stronger connections and power balance, and be able to really have policies and practices
1: and resources that fundamentally meet the needs for both. It sounds like uh, that's very similar to some of the processes and practices that are like taking more security people into schools rather than actually dealing with uh, the issue on a personal basis. Uh, Seven students in the Brooklyn Restorative Justice in the Schools program won the NPR's 2020 Student Podcast Competition. These students are part of the Men of Color. That's an after-school program at their high school. The students discussed climate change and environmental racism. They created this episode uh, or podcast after participating in the NYC Youth Climate March. Interview people about how black communities intersect with climate justice. The student's conclusion: climate change is racial injustice. How do they come to that conclusion? I'm have to admit I haven't actually heard the actual
2: NPR story, so I'm going to kind of infer a bit here. Um, when you talk about justice, we have to look at all the injustices from the lens of race and racial justice. That's my story. So when you talk about just because it's environmental justice, it all comes down to Who's being impacted disproportionately, how, and where is there an imbalance? So when you look at climate change or environmental injustice, you look, you know, the data bears it out again. Take example, a neighborhood in the Bronx, where a majority of you know, latino and black folk live and you see where a lot of the where the sanitation department places their warehouses where trash is dumped you know the environmental risk factors of the very buildings and spaces by which these places live in community and then you correlate that to risk factors and health uh around asthma and things like that then you can make the correlation that Environmental injustice impacts along racial lines. It's this, this people making decisions about where to actually place these things and do these things. And you can look at that from a community perspective, a city, municipality perspective, or you can look at that from you know a global perspective around where you know how climate change impacts, particularly uh, communities that are less resourced or have been marginalized. And you know a great example of that is the current pandemic we're going through. And how that has surfaced for many communities of color, this, this injustice, this imbalance, this this the risk factors that uh, the mitigating factors that impact those communities particularly at a much higher rate. And so, you know, kudos, you know, to these students, you know, for being young leaders and putting a spotlight on that and having us really examine that. But again, these things just don't come out of thin air. There's evidence and data that supports and backs many of these things around the relationship between
1: environmental injustices and racial. Except the question about have you found women of color to be involved? In what ways have women of color been involved in, in restorative justice? Oh, absolutely.
2: I mean, women of color, men of color, I mean, this restorative justice uh, in, uh, in, in many uh, is a diverse you know, a, a diverse range of voices that have been thought leaders and leaders. As I mentioned, some of the, the uh, original uh, founders of this work, many of them were women. Uh, you know, I, I give praise and kudos to women like Fanya Davis, you know, out in Oakland, who's doing amazing work uh, along the of justice and racial justice uh, with the Oakland Unified School District and, and the community of Oakland, you know, and, and, and many others, you know, um, around, uh, around this country and around the world. Uh, in fact, uh, I would say that uh, many of our many of the women who led, were leaders in the movements in the 60s and 70s uh, are coming at this work from uh, a a restorative justice lens. Uh, They may call it something different, but justice has always been the centerpiece for this work. And how we restore repair and a healing component of that is critically important. So you look at Dr. Monique Morris, and, and, and other thought leaders that are writing about, you know, push out. You know, Dr. Monique Morris writes about push out and, you know, African-American girls, black girls being pushed out because of how they identify and being suspended at even higher rates. So, you know, uh, so I would say absolutely uh, that, that. Uh, those voices
1: are a key and core part of this work, and they are very reflective. There's a case of the young boy his mother had brought into the program, and, and she was a, an eager and engaging participant. She, she clearly knew what was at stake. Uh, Though the prank calls that he made seemed minor, the charge could be enough to leave him with a criminal record. And it wasn't clear if he cared about what happened to him, but sometimes it appears he and other students might be concerned that it seemed we didn't have to have uh, a consequence, and uh, you know his his disinterest uh, had something to do with uh, the results of it. Why should he be worried? Yeah, I think I think what you're
2: asking is in general how can some incidents be handled through through this process, through restorative justice, restorative practice process, uh, and
1: when is it appropriate, or is this a replacement for a criminal charge or record? So why should that student be? concerned about a criminal charge at at some low level action like like he like a a prank call right so
2: again this points to what i talked about earlier you know what are some ways by which we actually can address this harm that's been caused by incorporating the voice of those who have been harmed I i would be curious in this case to ask those that have been harmed you know what are their needs you know, what are their needs? what do they need to have happen in this case? And the question becomes is it appropriate this level of offense if it's low level are there other ways within procedural justice that we can actually get to the get to a result that is an appropriate response a, 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 an appropriate action that meets the needs of those that are not everything that is low incident needs to be in a court and in front of a judge, we have other alternatives by which incidents and in cases sh- can and should be addressed, such as diversion, such as, you know, mediation and conflict resolution, such as restorative conferencing, you know, facilitating restorative conferences. So are there other ways that keep people out of the criminal justice system where the offender, you know, has the opportunity to make it right in relationship with or relationally with the person who's been harmed or the community that's been harmed? You know again, sometimes these things can be solved outside of a court system, outside of a punitive approach, because what's key here is not just taking the action, but making sure that accountability, true accountability was practiced and practiced in such a way where the person causing the harm has some level of empathy and understanding about their behaviors and actions to how it actually impacted others. I mean, that's the reparation, the repairing piece that's really critical here. And systems are not, you know, criminal justice systems are not, court systems are not necessarily geared to do that. they are to be procedural justice and to make sure that that law is being applied and followed. And I'm not saying in this case that the law is not applied and followed, but if it's a low-level incident and there are opportunities to deal with this case outside of a court hearing, I would highly recommend doing so in such a way that brings people
1: together. Well, in terms of that kid, would it be more of a threat to him if we said, Look, you can get a criminal record for this, even though you think it's uh, a minor offense. Would that be more of a threat that has nothing to do with restorative justice? Should it be just not even considered? Well, I think that there are cases where there is a
2: consequence, and restorative justice doesn't replace the consequence. That's not the purpose. You know, the purpose in this case would be there could be there could be some court proceeding of some sort, but that still is not going to get at how are we going to change the behavior and how are we are going to help this kid, this student, actually be accountable for his or her or their actions as a way of being responsible to the, the people that they harm the community that they harm. i mean that's really what's important here and that may have to be alongside of a balanced uh, a justice approach so you know again the question becomes is who's making that determination within what parameters in the legal system can we do this work and how can we truly Help meet the needs of both victims and offenders in 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 these types of of conferences, or using restorative justice as that process. Perhaps giving a kid a criminal record for a prank may not be the best use of criminal justice system. You know, particularly where there could be some transformation or action or uh, solutions happening at uh, between court personnel and community members.
0: So, Keith Hickman. You are aware of a group in an organization called the Circle Keepers. How does the Circle Keepers connect with restorative justice? Yeah, I mean this is
2: first of all a tremendous for local residents uh, out of Detroit. Now Circle Keepers is kind of a, a name that's been applied in other cities. I think there's a circle keepers group in Chicago as well that does restorative practices to restore justice and then if i'm since you're talking about the restore justice on the rise i'm pretty sure you're talking about what's happening in detroit so uh, i've had the the great opportunity to be i the the irp graduate school has has been a partner on the ground with the skillman foundation who supports the uh, health and well-being uh, of children in detroit particularly you know, children that have been marginalized, black and brown children, and other children. And we've had the opportunity to work with an organization called Black Family Development, Inc., which is a critical component and partner uh, in the transformative work happening in Detroit. And so that's been a, a multi-year journey we've you, had uh, in Detroit. It's all centered around the circle key, and I'll get to the circle people in a minute, It's all centered around the aim of making Detroit a restorative city. That's a pretty bold statement. It's a pretty big aspiration. However, the way this work is done is, the way it's built and constructed and scaffolded is at the community level. And one of the key players in this are residents that have been trained to, in theory and practice around restorative practices, and are implementing it at at the community level. So, for example, in the Dinby and Osborne communities. There are a group of local residents that are circle keepers. They've been extensively trained in restorative practices and are using those practices to actually build relationships, strengthen relationships, build community, build a dynamic in community that is able to weather uh, interpersonal conflict, and also use circle keepers as a way to address problems and concerns through a conferencing, uh, facilitating conferencing, which is a more formal process of restorative practices and a way to come together to solve community-based problems, including, to be be honest with you, the conversation we were having about the relationship between uh, neighborhood residents and law enforcement. So your circle keepers become a group of leaders in a neighborhood that are using these practices as a way to address the dynamics and the challenges across institutions. Extremely important extremely powerful because they're able to actually work in partnership with law enforcement around shared concerns and shared outcomes. So that group is a group of dynamic people that I, I give a lot of praise to for their courage and their uh, in incorporating this work, this body of work, as a way to impact change at the grassroots and ground level, but also inform these very structures by which we are faced with and challenges around policy, practices, and resources. And so, again, it, it points to the, the fact that people in community are powerful. They have a voice. They're powerful. They have agency, and how we leverage that power and agency and how they actually leverage that in partnership with leaders and other sectors is really critical to building the kind of neighborhoods
1: and transformation that needs to happen at the municipal but there's a lot of programs that come up in universities. Uh, courses offered. Balding University here in Louisville has offered a res, uh, work with restorative justice and uh, with their faculty members and graduate students. There are a number of courses or universities that are offering courses like Vermont Law School Center for Justice Reform has number of interesting opportunities, race and law, which we already talked about, race and the criminal justice system, juvenile law, global restorative justice. You've done work internationally. What's going on there? And does somebody have to have a college degree to teach restorative justice? So I'll I'll start by saying the IRP Graduate School,
2: over the years, uh, has done a tremendous amount of work, uh, particularly the fact that we're only one of a few, I think we're the only that offers a master's degree in restorative practices. So, it's important that we understand restorative practices justice as an emerging science, as a field of study uh, in higher learning and higher academia. Why is that important? Because it becomes a way. It becomes a social science, a social science approach to how we actually build relationship and being community and build. And it's interdisciplinary, and it's got a number of scholars uh, that over a number of years, that you know, from all around the world, that have looked at this discipline, that we call restorative justice and practices. And so, the fact that at you know, in academia, in higher education, it's not surprising that you see restorative practices begin to permeate and make its way into the coursework at at, uh, many, many universities around the country and abroad. And if you just did a Google search of a of justice or practices in higher ed, you'll find places like University of Michigan, many of the uh, universities in Pennsylvania, Vermont, University of Vermont, as you say here, and internationally as well. And so, and then IRP is a graduate school itself. So uh, our international pres- presence is pretty, pretty bold and pretty broad. And just in terms of the graduate school itself, we do extensive work across Europe and Canada for sure. And Latin America and in Singapore and other places, I would encourage people to check our factbook at IRP, uh, www.irp.edu, over 50 something languages spoken that have been trained. Our, our training scale is, is, is really off the charts and many leaders and communities are using these practices to actually build relationship, build community as a way to, to meet the needs and address the concerns at the local level. And so you don't need a a, a, you know a a certificate or a degree to do the work. We do have a continuing education arm or an academic affairs component to our work, where people can be trained to understand that they have a basic understanding of theory and practice. But you know to really become a a deep practitioner of this work and to really to understand the science behind the work. You know, coursework is, is is going to be important, and you know, working with faculty and thought leaders and scholars around the world is going to give someone, uh, you know, anyone interested in in being a restorative person and applying a restorative you know restorative approaches in their in their leadership is going to give them the opportunity to engage at a much higher level and to continue their education at a much thoughtful level. And so, you know, it's it's all integrated. It's not uh, an either or. It's an opportunity and a journey for folks to do this work in a dynamic way that's both personal and professional, collegial and community. I mean, we cover workplace, we cover community, K-12 schools, and higher ed, Like the, the multiple sectors by which this is placed is extremely important because remember, these are institutional practices that need to be looked at and the opportunity to do this
1: relationally is very, very important. Okay, we- know that you have listed a number of resources early in the program, but we want to also say that restorative justice in Kentucky is uh, something that people can check out at kcrj.us. And in Louisville, you can go to the website, http colon forward slash forward slash rjlou.org forward slash. Keith, we unfortunately are out of time for our broadcast today. We want to thank you for joining us in spreading the word about restorative justice programs around the country here in Louisville.
0: Our conversation today has been with Keith Hickman. Thank you, Keith, for sharing your time, your research and your reflections on restorative justice. We appreciate your being here with us to explore more solutions to violence. Thank you for joining us here on Forward Radio. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. This program featuring Keith Hickman will be placed in our archives October 6th. 2020. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose program archived, and scroll down to the Solutions to Balance program that features Keith Hickman. Wishing you and yours a safe and peaceful day during these challenging COVID pandemic times. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same.